0: hello and welcome to another episode of the Preferred Walk-Ons Podcast. I'm Michael McGraw, here as always with Michael Schutt, but today we have a special guest joining us. We're here with Brian Burnsed, who is an award-winning writer and contributor to Sports Illustrated and just an all-around good guy. So we wanted to have him on the show and talk about uh, a new piece that he has brought out recently. Up first, Brian. How are you doing?
1: Doing good. Another work day in the books. Happy to hop on with both of you. I appreciate the invite.
0: Yeah. So when I saw you around Christmas time, I brought up I I love your work and encourage everybody to go look at it. But one thread that has come out is that you do a lot of human interest stories that kind of take take sports in another direction and really focus on uh, what what people might be going through surrounding sports, but a lot of your stories are a little depressing. And so I had had suggested to you, you know, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe something fun, maybe something to counteract that narrative. And you came out with a new article and it's about traumatic brain injuries in football and how uh, there have been a rise in suicides and deaths. And so, obviously a very serious topic. So you did not take my advice at all. And uh, choosing something not depressing.
1: I I left that day and said, Well, whatever Michael said, I'm going to do the opposite. So let's that's smart, deeper to the depression, uh, and just the the tough stuff. So yeah, that's yeah. So what perfect, you
2: know, it's it's funny, real quick, before we move on, I was uh, having a conversation with a friend recently about this podcast, and just mentioned that, you know, we're going to interview this, this writer who's written for Sports Illustrated, and uh, she was not aware that Sports Illustrated exists outside of the swimsuit edition. So she was like, what are you guys going to talk about? Like, does he write about like women's bodies? And I was like, I don't think that's, I don't think you understand that Sports Illustrated has more than just that. So I think she was expecting a very lighthearted uh, content and, and definitely not what we're going to get today.
1: I will say when I have, you know, some people ask, what do you do? I say, yeah, right. For SI or, uh, and you know, some people say, Oh, wow, that's really cool. They know it. And then there will be that 10 20% that'll kind of crinkle their nose at you and be like, Oh, okay, dude, like, I, see too, and I- <laughs> yeah,
0: they think you write for Playboy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this article, which is, is great, what what led you to, to kind of get into this? Like what what drove you to cover this story?
1: So aside from wanting to displease you, um, it was uh, it actually started as a Vincent Jackson profile. Um, that was one of those things that hits the news, and you know, sadly, we're accustomed to seeing these these stories far too used to it uh, of players passing away too soon and too young, very tragically. But that one really struck me because he was so successful uh, in his post-playing days. You know, he. He had a uh, corporate real estate business that was thriving in the Tampa area. He'd been written up in all their local business publications for kids, stable family. You know, He was just kind of one of those people that was looked up to in a locker room. So I thought, well, this certainly warrants a deeper dive. But in this case, uh, I ran into a lot of roadblocks, uh, which is somewhat rare. I've had some good luck. And I think being able to call and say you're with SI can open a lot of doors and you can point to past work and people want to open up. Uh, but in this case people in his inner circle in the business world uh his family uh everyone in that really tight inner circle no one really wanted to talk um i think just because it was it was really tragic and he, the last months of his life were really difficult so understandably you know they certainly don't have to so you you take a different route and trying to get into that story and you start talking to as many former teammates as you can find you know he played for the chargers and played for the box. So I just started calling around and trying to find a uh, former teammate who might shed some light, might make connections, you know, that might be able to work my way in. And after a few of the first interviews, particularly with Marcus Harris, who was a, a linebacker for the chargers that came into the league with him in a uh, four range. I was just so struck by not only that Harris was, you know, obviously sad, disheartened by what had happened to us losing a close friend, but how it made him look in the mirror uh and think oh my gosh like if this could happen to vincent could this happen to me what do i need to do can i do anything to stave this off he started to get scared you know started to go to kind of fringe treatment centers to try to improve his brain health you know uh things like just those kind of more extreme measures because he was so rattled by it coming out of that conversation i had a long talk with my editor about you know we could do the vincent jackson thing but without the access we're not going to get the color that makes it worthwhile you know when we try when i do a story i try to really make bring it to life the best I can. And without some of that access, is it really worth doing? I don't know. And like I said earlier, we kind of, we've read that versions of that story for 10 or 15 years now, which is troubling. So what's a new angle. And this new angle popped up kind of, as we talked it over, the Marcus Harris interview really revealed itself to us that maybe the story isn't the people that die. It's the people that are left behind, the teammates that are left behind. And what, what, how do they reckon with it? How do they reconcile that? How do they? What happens to them when they look in the mirror and think about their friends? And so that spawned more conversations with his former teammates, and led to talking to other former players and agents who have dealt with this. And that's what led me to Ray Crockett, who that anecdote in the story was pretty powerful. I was amazed at how open he was with me about his personal struggles and thoughts of suicide and just how low he he'd gotten. Um, so that's kind of how it evolved. It, it didn't wasn't something I set out to tackle, but in a way I'm glad that those doors shut because I think it, it wound up being something that was a little more original and different and maybe thought provoking than a typical, you know, Oh, sad. Here's the descent into CTE and depression story that again is, you know, sadly very sad to say is a quite familiar read. Yeah. That, that
2: angle of uh, current players, but, but also former players who are still here at the way you put it was very poignant. The ones who are left behind, we don't, Often get the story from their angle, and I was reading through it today, and uh, the Ray Crockett story was unreal. I mean, I was sitting there trying to process that, and, and just like hearing, you know, it feels like this conversation is becoming more, more prominent, which is both troubling and a good thing. It's good that we're talking about it. I, I think one of the one of the big shifts that strikes me is because we're talking about it, hopefully we can take some strides to improve things. In your conversations, I know there was a little bit in the piece about this, but what have you seen in terms of strides that are being taken to try to help prevent stories like Vincent Jackson's from becoming or or from from continuing to be commonplace?
1: Yeah, great question. And that was really uh, something that really interested me in the reporting is specifically what the Chargers did in the wake of Vincent's passing. I think so many people like Marcus Harris, Greg Camarillo, Keenan McCardell, et cetera, list goes on, were so shaken by that that they put a group together. It's in the piece where they started to do monthly Zoom calls. The Chargers provided their team psychologists and were very supportive of facilitating that um, in which they could just talk about difficulties they face in their post-playing lives. And it's it's not all CTE. It's not like they're all facing symptoms. I mean, if you look at the proportion of former players, college pro level who wind up suffering from the symptoms of it, it's, it's actually quite low, but there's still the specter of it there that they're worried about. Uh, and then there's just also the difficulties in losing your identity as an athlete to, to reach that level as a college player or an NFL player. That's all. You've been a football player first above all else for the majority of your adult life and in your childhood and teens. Um, and to have that stripped away, as it is for all, that's tough to, to battle. And you combine any brain trauma with that, oftentimes is medicated with substance abuse, things like that, to try to treat it. That's what that's what happened with Vincent Jackson was, you know, alcohol gave him Temporary relief, but ultimately cost him his life. So it facilitated that fear. The silver lining was that it facilitated really important conversations, and guys felt comfortable opening up um, when they really hadn't felt comfortable doing so their whole adult lives, and they finally had a forum in which they could express that. And I was, I thought that was really neat. As far as I could tell, it's not like I was able to get in touch with every team and, and ask them, "Hey, are you doing something similar?" But asking around it seemed relatively without precedent. I don't want to say definitively this was the only time that this sort of you know, retired player group, almost group therapy sessions were happening, but I certainly haven't seen that written about uh, or discussed in my reporting I didn't encounter it. And the players said it was really meaningful and they're going to try to continue to do maybe in-person versions of it in the off season, things like that. And Maybe having read that the Chargers were doing this, other teams may, may step up and, and try to create similar programs. I, I do think that, yeah, the, the positive that comes out of all these sad headlines is that, especially with mental health coming to the forefront in college athletics and pro athletics and being more and more accepted that it can be discussed, I think that's healthy. That's very helpful. Uh, and I think that people are going to start feeling more and more comfortable with opening up to each other, to professionals, et cetera, uh, that can help them out.
0: Yeah, I think when, like, it, it's great that players have been able to take the, on that role themselves. I think there's been a lot of scrutiny on the league broadly to take this seriously, especially after, you know, the, the concussion studies kind of got buried and that whole back and forth. But still, you know, we have high profile examples. And you, you referenced to a in your piece about how, you know, here's somebody who suffers a very traumatic, obvious head injury and is still playing in the game later. He goes through concussion protocol twice you know, is is there anything more broadly that the league could be doing? I mean, it, again, it's great that players are taking this on on their own. But, you know, is there something more that football itself should be doing?
1: So it really, I mean, it comes down to, so there's protocols on paper, right? Which is one thing, and it sounds good in a vacuum. And you can sit together with the medical experts that are well-intentioned and coaches and players that are well-intentioned. And at the the college level, I've been in those rooms where they make those decisions, carve out those protocols. And I'm sure it plays out very similarly between the NFLPA and the league. And that's all well and good. But when the rubber hits the road, does the protocol stand up to the moment? Right, And that's what we saw this year with Tua in particular, that it certainly did not. And that's what's alarming. Given all all the discussion, all the articles like this that that have been written, all the billions of dollars uh, lost in this settlement, the concussion settlement. Despite all of that, we still have something, a player that's in obvious physical distress has obviously injured his brain, able to come back on the field. uh, And then it happens again four days later. And there's protocols and independent neurologists there specifically to stop this. And it got missed. So that's where in the piece, you know, we, we talked to JC Treader and I thought that was pretty interesting that that night his phone was blowing up a different manifestation of that same fear. It's not players saying like, Oh my gosh, like protect me from CTE, protect Sua from CTE. But it's just that acute, like, we know this shouldn't be happening. We don't want to see this. How do we protect each other essentially if, if the protocols won't. So really I think the protocols are evolving. I think everyone is well intentioned. It's just a matter of can you actually step up and execute the protocols and protect the players, and that's on that's on everyone. And I, I thought that was a good point. JC Tretter made, uh, the NFLPA president, former uh, Browns center, that he noted that of course it's the job of the medical staff, the spotters, the league, but also players need to be able be willing to step up and say, hey, to a like no, like you wobbled, like go sit down, go to the tent, go talk to the doc. I know you're our star quarterback and we need you for the game, but can can they protect each other? Because when you're in the heat of the moment, you just want to be on the field so that the teammates have to look out. Should that be their responsibility solely? Absolutely not. But the, the whole community involved in the game, players, spotters, physicians, coaches need to be on the same page and making sure the protocols are adhered to. Otherwise, this problem will just perpetuate. It sounds good on paper, and then that paper is lit on fire the second his head hits the ground and he's still in the game.
2: Yeah, I think one of the most difficult things about this even though i I don't necessarily think this should be difficult is we have a hard time balancing the thing that should be priority which is concern for the welfare of players with this kind of old school mentality about football that it's a it's a tough physical game people get hurt you know like my like growing up playing sports as a kid like it wasn't even that long ago and i remember just wording about somebody getting their bell rung and just being able to get up and go and now we know more about the long- term impacts, and it feels especially with the NFL, it feels like there's so much fight between the sort of business of football, right? You want TuA out there, you want guys like that out there and and sort of what we think football should be, but that pales in comparison to the significance, the importance of protecting these people. my My curiosity here is because we talk so much on on this show about college sports. In the NFL, it's one thing. I, I struggle. I mean, I love college football. I struggle sometimes watching it, honestly, because when I watch the NFL and I see somebody like Tua, there's at least a part of me that understands that he has the financial means to get care and uh, the resources are there. I struggle when it's college kids. College kids who are just trying to have a shot and and they're kind of they're putting themselves at this risk as well, if not greater risk because the 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 Technique is not always as good, right? So tackling may not be as sound. And I'm just curious if, if kind of, if you've seen uh, what kind of differences you've seen from the pro and the college level in terms of kind of addressing this issue. Um, are there conversations taking place? I mean, that's that's early on, right? Versus like retired NFL players um, about how to address this kind of preemptively, or or what changes maybe have been seen there. Have you seen anything in your conversations?
1: Definitely. I mean, I uh, before I started with SI, I wrote for the NCAA's magazine for about seven years and covered actually covered the health and safety beat there and was involved in a lot of the discussions about concussion studies, protocols, things like that. So I can say it is a chief concern and there have been huge, huge investments and in money and time and brain power into walking up to this issue, much like the NFL. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Right. Like the, the protocols are evolving. Can you expect a like a D2 game with like limited, there you have like two athletic trainers per side, if that, to be able to spot this in a small stadium in a poor, poorly resourced school, to be able to spot this like you if Tua can slip through on national TV in the NFL, then certainly we're missing a lot at that level, right? So that's the concern at the college level. Again, I think all the people involved are well intentioned. But it's a re, it's a, ultimately, it's a resource issue, particularly for these small, even small D1. You know, it, it'd be easy to miss things. Uh, and the protocols are important, and the schools are, they, they have things, affidavit, not affidavits, but they have to sign, sign submit their protocols and have them vetted by committees. I mean, it's a pretty involved, intricate process that I think the public would probably be pleasantly surprised to see how much thought goes into these protocols. But again, it's an adherence thing, just like we talked about with Tua. You can have the protocols, but... Um, if it's a small school and you miss something that kid might be in danger if it's a big big game and you know national championships on the line maybe you're inclined to push them back out there and like you said they're not you know i mean nil's helps but they're not paid they're young their whole future's ahead maybe they're just doing this for the scholarship or they're you know they're a walk-on and they're and they're getting to to try it but they're going to go off into whatever else after it's not their whole life so yeah the i think the the moral conundrum is stronger at the college level for the point you raise because while they're coming in eyes wide open, the risk reward leans a little more risk, right? And at that level, then the the rewards are obvious at the NFL level, but the, the risks are about the same at the college level, but then you have less financial compensation, less mechanisms there to protect them, et cetera. Even if things are moving in the right direction, it's just a, it's a resource issue at, at its core.
0: Yeah. And at the NCAA level, particularly even D1, scholarships are only one year. So, you know, you're in a program, even if they're doing everything the right way, maybe you get an injury and they kind of cut you loose or over recruit behind you. Right. And so then you're kind of left to find some alternate solution and you don't have the money and resources that pros have. Right. Has it changed? I, I have a similar feeling to, to what Shut said about, like, I've, I've grown up loving college football. You know, I, We do a podcast about it, so we, we care a lot about it. But has, you know, just from your own reporting, writing on this, has it changed your perspective on how you consume college sports?
1: So this is, I've I've wrestled with this a lot, both college and NFL. I mean, I I love college football. I had a college football column for NCAA.com and Turner Sports back in 2012 or so, and watch every Saturday and certainly watch every Sunday. Uh, And as I was reporting this piece, you know, still watching the, the college playoffs, still watching NFL every Sunday. This piece came out two days after the AFC and NFC title games. I knew it was coming, talked about it with buddies. And there we are, six, seven of us watching the games, having a blast, right? Like, it feels a bit hypocritical, frankly. I mean, I've covered concussion data and research and studies and I appreciate the direction they're moving, but I know that it's dangerous and I know and I know what these results can be for the sliver of players that are affected. But still, I watch, right? I mean, uh, so, you know, it's, it's ultimately a choice we all have to make. You can educate yourself the best you can. And with that knowledge, do you choose to stop watching? Sure, some do. And I, I'll applaud you if that's your choice, but... I have not been able to get there. Maybe because it's just been ingrained in my life since I was a kid. I don't know. It's just such a such an element, key element of my weekends in the fall, uh, and I, I think always will be. And kind of, uh, it's a social bond too, right? Fantasy leagues. You know, that's how you sit, that's how I stay in touch with a lot of my college friends is mainly through you know fantasy being the conduit to stay in touch, right? Or, or a big college football Saturday, and we're texting each other much like I'm sure you know, like you said, you guys <clears throat> have a podcast about it, right? um so it's it's really tough it's something i've wrestled with privately and talked with friends about but i can't say i've ever encountered something that i felt was so egregious even though a lot of it has been egregious to make me say no i'm I'm turning it off and and the the problems they're improving the solutions are coming but they're going to keep trickling out rather than being abrupt because i think so many people react the same way like the viewership's not going anywhere right like People worry. Oh, it, hey, it's a crisis. It is a medical crisis, but it's not a viewership or fandom or money crisis. Like none of that has been diminished at all by any of this.
2: And that's kind of I, I find myself wondering about that because I, I you're right. Like obviously, viewership has not gone down. We're still watching, right? We're more concerned watching. I just always think about uh, when I think about the future of football. It's becoming an increasingly common question of Would you let your kids play football? Right? And and like I feel it's so interesting that our parents wouldn't necessarily have given it second thought I mean maybe they would right they knew it was a dangerous game but now we're learning that it's not just dangerous in the sense that you know you might have some broken bones and things like that but uh, you know just in terms of the long-term thing and it 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 just kind of you know I don't know what the question is here but it's just kind of uh, thinking more about kind of what does football look like moving forward? Do, do, do we start to lose quality because there are people out there who are moving away from it? You know, I don't think we've seen that yet, but I do wonder about that. Just, just thinking, you know, if it's the kid, it's not necessarily going to be the the Tua's of the world, the the highly decorated recruits, but some of those fringe roster guys, the role players. Like, do they look at it and say, you know what, like it's not worth it? It's not worth me putting my life at risk um, with these stories that we see. I don't know. I, I guess I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts on on the future of football. Like, is it does this uh, have a measured effect on quality of the game? Do we, as a, like culturally, do we move away forever? I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, that's a great question because that, to your point, I mean, we have seen youth and high school participation rates have diminished over the past decade or so. I mean, it's not been a falling off a cliff, but pretty steady drops on the margins. So you're seeing fewer and fewer. Per- people play in their young years, which actually I think is a healthy thing, because if you look at most of the data and understand the physiology of the brain, those early years, that's when you're most vulnerable. Um, there's a lot of things that happen uh, within your neurons that harden and protect them kind of once you hit college age and after where you're a little less vulnerable. But those early, you know, those, the, the Pop Warner years, middle school, early high school, even, even all the way through senior year of high school, you're still have a rapidly developing brain and a very vulnerable one. And I think parents have taken that to heart. And that's why you're starting to see some participation rates drop. And in response to that, you are, I mean, we we've, we've seen the game change a ton in the last, you know, 15 years or so. And a lot of that's through innovation, but I think it's more innovation and in offense designed to account for new rule changes driven by safety, right? Like it's not, Ooh, we just got better at drawing up plays. It's no, we can change how we draw at plays because you can't hit receivers over the middle. X, Y, and Z. Any number of rule changes that have opened the game up, and so I think that that's the evolution we're going to see in order to keep people interested. Parents willing to let their kids play, at the, even at the high school level and into college, is let's make the game faster. Um, let's change rules to protect the head a little bit more, open things up. You see so many more seven on seven at the youth level is such a big thing now. It used to be, that was just that wasn't a thing twenty years ago. So I think you're going to see the game continue to evolve, continue to get faster. You know, people will say, oh, it's like basketball now. Well, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing if it's a safer sport. And and if the rule changes make it a little more high scoring, a little faster, but head trauma, head impacts diminish. Wonderful. Right. Um, I did a piece in 2021 about the evolution of offensive line play and teams moving away from three and four point stances. A lot of it's strategic, but there's a a kind of a health side effect of that where those linemen aren't catching those helmet to helmet hard shots every single play. If you start in an up stance, you you don't lead with your head quite as much. And that's really where they've found more of the long-term effects are derived from those repetitive low hits that won't even render a concussion. But you catch 70 of those in a game and tons and tons in camp and practice, they add up. And that's where the danger lies. And so now you're seeing if you watch a game, there's a couple of years ago, there was a clip. It was Dolphins Chargers, and the only lineman that was down was the center. All the offensive linemen were standing up, and all the, the defense was in the amoeba. The Dolphins like to run that amoeba. And so everyone, when they impact, their their eyes are up. They're kind of jockeying with their arms. They're not just plowing into each other with their helmets. So as the game evolves, I think the rules for safety's sake are going to necessitate more of that style of play, which is aesthetically pleasing. It's fun. It's fast. It's still football. It's just... It's just, it's just different uh, in the name of safety, but I don't think it makes it any less entertaining.
0: Yeah, I wonder if as generations move on and we get a younger generation that's more used to a freer form of football. I mean, our parents probably much more interested in seeing heavy hitting defenses, right? But here we, Pat Mahomes just won the Super Bowl and they were flying all over the field, right? And so that's what that's what this upcoming generation is used to. And so maybe there are ways generationally that that changes. You mentioned rule changes. You know, for me, this is where I feel kind of hypocritical. Is like, I feel like there are a lot of rule changes, particularly at the college level in trying to eliminate those helmet-to-helmet hits, right? But then kind of in practice, in watching the game, you see a helmet-to-helmet hit and then there's like a targeting review and people are debating. And then it's, you know, really comes down to like, Oh, is this guy going to have to sit out a half? You know, next week, right? And and a lot of the announcing kind of focuses on that, and like, oh, they got a big game next week, and he's going to miss the first half. So, and and I fall victim to that too. You know, I watch a game, and I'm like, ah, we were we're really going to need this guy next week. But you know, also maybe somebody really just had a traumatic brain injury on the on the field.
1: Yeah, it's the cultural part is is interesting. When I was at NCAA, they poured a lot of money into studying. Concussions, you know, how they happen, why they happen, et cetera. It makes sense. But there was also a ton of research grant money assigned to studying culture and ways to improve culture and change acceptance of not only don't make that hit, but if you feel woozy, tell your teammates, that sort of stuff. So people are going to have to invest time and money in helping that culture pivot. To your point, like the announcer says, oh, we're going to miss him next week. You know, if the culture shifts enough, it's, oh, he's out next week because he shouldn't do that. That's egregious, right? Like that should be the accepted message. And it takes, I think we will get there. You know, you see big hits, the two a thing, everyone's up in arms. That's what a pivot that is from 10 years ago when people would have been like, oh, you know, what a sack, you know, that was not what was uttered in the moment. So I think we're getting there, but it's, it's going to take time. And the college stuff, yeah, it just... 18 to 22 year old guys, macho, testosterone, just going nuts. And you just want to be the baddest dude out there. And it's really hard to rein that in and be like, Hey buddy, like don't spear him. Or, you know, if you're feeling bad, come sit down because it's safer. Like that's a, that's a tough pivot, especially with, I mean, we know, uh, I don't want to stereotype but college coaches are college coaches. Right. And they don't, they're typically not the most thoughtful about things like that though. I do think that in that community that has, we started to see some, some big strides there as well. Well,
2: it's hard too when you're like, trying to train you know college kids to be considerate about these things and understanding them and then you've got like a strength and conditioning coach headbutting somebody with helmets on like you know it's tough to model that well i I will say one of the things i've noticed over the last couple years as an nc state fan uh we've had a safety who played for us for a a few years now tanner engel who's like you know real hard hitting safety and sure there'll be a a, uh an individual hit where everybody's like, oh, you know, hell yeah, that was a great hit, but he's had a few, uh, quite a few targeting ejections, and I feel like it's it's kind of cool to see the fan base sort of turn to, like, okay, you can't do that, right? Now, to, to McGraw's point, some of it may be coming from a we-need-you-in-the-game kind of standpoint, but I think even that is progress towards eventually, like, hopefully the criticism is you can't do that because that's unsafe, right? Right. And it's unsafe for the person you're hitting. It's unsafe for you. It's it's not worth it, and it doesn't necessarily make the game better. I mean, over the years, there have been football players who have built their careers on being hard hitting players, but it doesn't. There, there's a way to do that that is safer and healthier. So I do hope we see kind of a a long term shift um, in terms of kind of how we view those hits in football which I, I think is coming. Like you guys were saying, like the shift to kind of how, what, what brand of football we enjoy more now. I think it is ch- kind of changing in a way that, that could be beneficial here. Um, I love your
1: point about strength coaches as setting the culture. Cause that's, yeah. I did a piece on that uh, for the NCAAs magazine. It's probably been about five, five or so years. And, and this was a, we were just on the vanguard of it then. Uh, this was a huge concern amongst the sports medicine community at the college level where you have athletic trainers trying to stick to these protocols and coaches trying to, you know, enforce, Hey, we've got to do X, Y, and Z for the sake of health and safety. And the strength coaches are poorly regulated field. They're making strides there. They're trying to rein that in, but yeah, you'll see these guys, head, like you said, headbutting on the field and just the, the general mentality in the weight room of like, you see these weightlifting videos and they're just going nuts, like mm-hmm. doing crazy maxes. And it's like, is this actually helping your athletic performance or is this just a helpful recruiting tool and like hype video and like strange culture thing, but guys are get like athletic trainers. I talked to at D one levels are saying like half the injuries I see in a given year are because of mistakes in the weight room and overtraining and like pushing too hard. This kind of hyper macho mentality. That's not targeted scientific way to build your body and your athleticism. That's, that's a massive issue that goes really underreported and under discussed within college athletics and the big, big programs they give the keys to the castle to the strength coaches to set the culture, set the tone they they play a huge part in that in recruiting and uh, connecting with the players, but which are they leading them the correct direction? Are they behaving appropriately within what we know about exercise science and everything else we've already discussed.
0: Yeah. We've talked ab- about health and sports in the intersection. And I also wanted to bring up, you've written a couple of articles, both about high school and college and how it's uh, intersected with, the coronavirus and that pandemic. You you wrote a piece a couple of years ago when it looked when the NCAA decided to cancel the tournament, because I was right when the the outbreak happened. How is COVID I mean we're still living in it, but it's kind of a post afterthought, even though it's still around in your reporting, is it still an issue that teams are thinking about? Have we moved on? Has has COVID changed anything about particularly college sports?
1: You know, I obviously it did. In the height of the pandemic, pre-vaccine, I mean, the the financial toll and what it did to athletic departments and layoffs and kids having to go home, I mean, that's been well documented and was a massive effect. But longer term, uh, no, I don't, frankly, I think it's kind of people were eager to get back to normal as soon as the science said it was okay to, and as soon as they did, I mean, I think the college level in particular, because you're affiliated with institutions of higher education or. They took that seriously because the campuses did, right? So the athletics departments adhered to maybe more stringent rules and regulations than you might even see at the, in the public level or state level. But no, as, as of now, I mean, everything I've, I've heard in talking with former colleagues there and then also just in reporting is that we're kind of back to normal and people are happy to be. Uh, I don't know if there's any real lasting changes of that other than knowing, you know, Hey, something like this can come along and upend us, but you know, it was stunningly temporary. Like the, The economic fallout, if you look at the, you know, the NCAA financial numbers, you know, they obviously had that dip. And that's what I wrote about where they had to, they gave up a bunch of the tournament money, got the disaster insurance payment that, you know, they definitely had to tighten their belt and it caused layoffs at schools and at the NCAA itself. And it was a fraught time, but the money's back. You know, if you, if you look at the financials, they had a great year last year. So it was, uh, it was a very large blip in the grand scheme. If you look at the overall trajectory over a 10 year period, you know, the financials for the schools and for the organization itself, look look fine. And as far as cultural impact, I don't know. Maybe it makes people more conscientious or glad to be there. Tough to say, but it kind of feels like business as usual by this point. That's not to downplay the major impact it had on society and college athletics and all that. It did for quite some time. But as of now, I don't, you know, it's back to normal.
0: I do wonder if there is a little bit of... um. The rich get richer. Part of this, right? You know, the the programs that have a lot of money and have big endowments. You know, are they able to survive this and have the resources compared to some other programs that maybe have had to make some really tough decisions? You know, following the layoffs that they made, right? Like, is is there is that a consideration, or am I just reading too much into that?
1: No, I think that's that's a good point. That's probably something I missed when initially answered. Is that you did see. You know, when teams are when schools are making cuts, they're they're cutting the teams on the fringes. Right. They're more they're going to cut a cross country team before they cut their second offensive football assistant. Right. Mm -hmm. Because that they probably spend as much on cross country as they do for their like fifth highest paid coach. So that I don't I haven't done enough reporting to speak on it intelligently to know whether or not those are creeping back. But I do know that that was a big epidemic within college athletics that you're losing fringe programs even at big schools and then certainly the smaller schools that have fewer resources were really badly impacted and lost a lot of sports and personnel and things like that so i'd imagine it takes longer for them to creep back to some level of normal than what we see every saturday on abc at 7 p.m
2: which i think is a you know kind of a bigger picture example of the impact that inequity has on on how the, the pandemic hit people i you know i was reading today your um the article on the, the uh, high school football in, in Georgia and just thinking about stories of people who like, you know, maybe the resources aren't the same as some others across the country who, you know, you know, there's kids who lost maybe a high school football season to COVID or whatever sport. Right. But they were able to access private training and coaching and whatever, but also the impact on recruiting. I th- I think it's been interesting to see uh, what the uh, the pandemic did to, did to recruiting and did to kids who are again fighting for those spots we mentioned earlier with some of the health concerns it's different right it's different for the high profile recruits and and the big stars but all of these things really for some of these kids can be life or death right and so i know you know some of the angle on that story was football as an escape route and kind of looking for a path to a better future you know so seeing kind of covid impact that i don't know if if I mean, I, I just really, I enjoyed that story a lot and I wasn't sure if kind of there's any update, if you know anything about kind of where, what that looks like moving forward for some of those kids or that team.
1: Yeah, that was uh fall of 2000. So it was right in the, I was embedded with them kind of, it was mid pandemic. It was after Albany had been hit really, really hard, but it was, I mean, I was nervous reporting it because that was the first time in the pandemic I'd really gone anywhere and stayed in a hotel and this is pre-vaccine and Albany had been an epicenter for this and I'm the photographer and I are going into the locker room with 50 kids, you know, and that was, that was uh, nerve wracking. Uh, But they, they were happy to be there because it was, like you said, it was their release amid all this difficulty. And I think you make a great point about the resources because I think the kids like Drew Marcus, who was on the cover and who we featured kind of on and off throughout that story, you know, came from a difficult household, multi-generational household crammed into a small place and, He loses training opportunities. He's not a star, um, but maybe he's got the sort of build that maybe if he has enough time to train through his vital sophomore, junior years, when you're going to get recruited to build his body up and build his skill set up, maybe his future looks different than, oh, gosh, I had to sit at home for that year and maybe couldn't stay in shape. Like, that's a huge setback. It's like it's like it's almost like tearing an ACL for a year and and you miss a year of training and skill building. And who knows how many thousands of kids on the fringes, right, that maybe could have gone and played low level D1 lost that training ability lost that year and and now they couldn't. I'm not sure if he I think that they are they would have just wrapped up his senior season so I'm not sure if he's been recruited anywhere. Um but I have it's I certainly haven't seen his name circulating so I do think it kind of fits what you're getting at whereas the star quarterback certainly not well off but from a more stable household and was freshman star QB he I think he's got one year left but he's already committed. He's been recruited to play baseball at Indiana and he's already uh I think offered maybe a verbal commitment um, or at least expressed very, very strong interest in playing running back at Florida State. Um, so like the, the star guy got through it and his future looks pretty bright. Whereas the fringe guy, it's a little murkier. Like he need, the impact of that missing year didn't hit the star player quite as much as it did the fringe guy. Yep.
0: Yeah. I think COVID accelerated a number of changes that were probably likely to come anyway. You know, we've had schools, deciding that they need more money and forcing them, I I put forcing in quotes, but forcing them to make uh, realignment decisions, you know, trying to consolidate into bigger conferences with bigger TV deals. You have players who now have been able to capitalize on NIL stuff and get an extra year of eligibility. So it seems like there's a lot going on and it feels to me as kind of the Wild West. Like I really don't know what to expect in five ten years from any of this right and they're in the ncaa is does not have the most uh firm grasp on being able to set and enforce rules on these kind of things so uh, given your experience uh, working for the ncaa's magazine how do you see the landscape changing or going in the next few years
1: it's uh it's murky like you said uh i mean they certainly the the losses they took in court really kind of stripped them of the ability to enforce a lot of the rules that they used to enforce or might want to enforce. And when I say they, this is something that uh, not just because I work there, but I just think it's something that people don't really understand. And maybe maybe some do. I mean, you guys probably do, you you, you know, have a pot about this, really care about it, but I think the general sporting public doesn't really realize like the NCAA is a helpful catch-all term for your favorite team within, and your a college president, right? Because those are the people having sat in those meetings. Yes, the NCAA execs have some measure of sway. They can set the tone. They can set priorities. But the people pushing the button on votes and making the big decisions are university presidents. And so it's helpful for the college president because you don't want to say like, oh, I hate UVA because they made X decision that I feel exploits athletes. You can say, I hate the NCAA and that guy emmered in that little in that glass building in Indianapolis when really like yeah like there's there's reasons to criticize but did he make the vote no uh the college presidents did right and so it's it was uh we called it the heat shield i don't know if people in the building loved being perceived that way but that's kind of that that was the structure of it and it worked to the benefit of the schools um because the NCA is ultimately the schools and the and the higher ups in higher ed make all those decisions that and that get them crushed in court, you know, and if there's internal pushes for reform, those got shot down quite a bit because the status quo was, you know, things were good uh, on campuses in general. So uh, I think that's why we saw progress go very slowly. Now the courts forced their hand. I think it's a good thing. I think a lot of people probably on campuses and within that building are really happy to see a lot of the new changes. And it's, uh, it, there's, like you said, it is kind of wild West territory right now because they, they don't, they can't regulate it because of what the courts decided. And now they're trying to go to Congress to try to get some more teeth. I don't think that's going to go very well. I've, I've seen people on both sides of the aisle say like, no, like get your own house in order, right? This is not our job. Uh, and I agree. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't see how they could think, oh yes, we'll just have the federal government go set the rules for us. I mean, so I think it's going to continue to be. An ever, evol- ever evolving chaos. Uh, I don't. I don't know if there's really uh, a clean end to this. I just think it's continually change and change and change. But I think most of the changes have been, at least of late, have been for the betterment of the athletes. I mean, the fact that they have access to these nil, this NIL funds and everything like that—that's that, a—that's a big change. It comes at the cost of tradition, and we like we like our tidy Big East, you know, in basketball. That's gone. And it, even the ACC's blown up. And you know, all the conference realignment, as a fan, it's kind of a bummer. But if you're on the campus, if you're a kid, the changes, I think, have largely been positive. Um, but no, I don't, I don't see the dust settling anytime soon. That's a long way of saying that.
2: Yeah, well, like, isn't it objectively more fun to blame Mark Emmert for everything? <laughs> I feel like <laughs> the uh, – or whoever, right? Insert Jim Delaney or, or, or Jim Phillips or whoever. I, I miss being able to blame uh, Swafford for everything bad that happened in the ACC. The uh, realignment stuff is. I'm glad you brought that up because I was actually thinking this morning about this, and it does feel as a fan like I don't know. I've hated certain things. Like I'm not. I'm not emotionally ready to talk about USC and UCLA and the Big Ten. That that's not something I can process. I I I'm still not even like there with Maryland, right? So like I I haven't had time to figure that out. But you know, at at the end of the day, I think it still is is a path towards something that could be even a lot more fun. Like, we're going to get Texas, Texas A&M again, right? Like, we're going to get some of these things and just games that are going to be like, you know, Ohio State's not going to get to cakewalk through a schedule as, as easily, right? Um, I just, I think there are things that can be really good, right? I, I think this is the sort of, you know, McGraw and I for New Year's did a, like fans resolutions and we were talking about one of my big things is always this is supposed to be fun, right? Like, so I try to look at the positives. I feel like there's a lot of good in this, right? I love the fact that these kids can profit off of their name and likeness. I love the loosening up the transfer stuff so that, you know, a kid uh, like Casey Morsell, uh <laughs> can go pursue an opportunity that's better for him. You know, I, I just think overall we're in a better place than we were i, I agree it, it needs to get there's got to be some better regulation they've got to figure out how to make all of this work but it seems to me that all of it is coming from a very positive place and can lead us to a very positive
1: place yeah if you you know you think about maybe 10 years ago 15 years ago uh, a random saturday in october it's like oh there's only you know two ranked teams playing there's only two matchups with ranked teams you know bummer but if everyone consolidates in two or three conferences, and you're just gonna have heavyweights go at each other every weekend, I mean, that's that's fun, right? Like that's good for the fan. Like you you give up tradition for the sake of getting to see awesome games every weekend. Perhaps, perhaps that's where we're going. It certainly seems like it. Um, so you know, it's tough. I'm sure 15 years ago, a lot of people are arguing like, I want to see better games. Why don't the heavyweights schedule each other and play every weekend? Well, now you're gonna get that, and then you're still gonna have people talking on the other sides of their mouth saying like, I miss tradition. I miss seeing this this matchup you know in which northwestern gets dusted by michigan every year or whatever you know like okay like i think i think we are moving in a better spot for viewers for players etc i think i think it's exciting i do worry a little bit
0: I, I don't know how many uva fans see this but i do worry because i think there are going to be some schools that have decent programs That are going to be left out of the cold from, you know, if you end up with conferences that are, you know, the SEC and the Big Ten have 20, 24 teams or something like that. There are a lot of programs that are legitimate programs that are going to be left out. I mean, UVA football hasn't been great in in a number of years, but they've been competitive compared to Vandy, right? That is in the SEC and can make all the money and get dusted, like you say. So I, I do get the kind of anxiety about that that schools like and it, th- this is a major moneymaker for schools themselves so it has an impact on the educational decisions that get made and, th- and that's why you're seeing a lot of schools kind of frantically testing the waters on these things i do also think you know this is like a less tangible thing but you know part of the reason that college sports has always appealed to me more than pro sports is just you get a sense of rivalries and uh you know so you know, Shut brought up a good point. You know, Texas, Texas AM and is coming back. That's awesome. Even though Texas AM and doesn't want to play that game. But that's a side story. But seeing USC playing Rutgers, right? Like, it, I don't know. It just seems there is something different that feels lost about it. But, you know, that could just be my old person perspective, having watched the ACC for so long.
1: No, I, I, I feel it, too. I, I get that side of it because, um, as you know, formerly a diehard Georgia Tech fan I mean that's still my team so to speak but since realignments happened you know haven't been competitive the last five years I mean some of that's coaching but it's it's ultimately it's a resource issue right like I used to be able to count on okay every fourth season we're going to be like top 50 and cool awesome I'm so excited like the games are going to matter like this one out of every three years or five years or whatever it is and we're going to have a couple like really meaningful games and maybe play in a conference title game and like no aspirations on winning the national title, but the, you know, those little milestones, like they are meaningful, they're fun. And so you do, I think you do lose that. And UVA had a very comparable program, very similar circumstances where it's like, yeah, maybe we peak once a decade or once every seven years, and like there's a little number nine by us on a Saturday. That's really cool. That's gone. Right. Like, cause just the reason if if you're not one of the big boys in one of the big conferences, like how in the world do you compete financially? You just can't.
0: Did you renounce your full throttled support of Georgia Tech because of Josh Passner? What's your take on him? I was going to, you
2: beat me to it. I really, I was dying to ask him about Josh Passner.
1: So I was, I mean, I was a big Hewitt guy. I went to two Paul Hewitt mm-hmm. basketball camps, uh, won the shooting award. So that was my dude. Um, so I'm I have, I have, sorry
0: I, have, I left that out at the, in your intro.
1: I'll <laughs> that That's more important than anything I've done in my professional life. Come on. Uh, so, I mean, I had a, I worked with a guy who uh, was a massive Memphis fan, grew up in Memphis and would rant and rave about passenger and get upset about him and all that. So I kind of knew what we were, what we were going to deal with. I mean, the face shield was admirable. I mean, the commitment to safety. We talked about safety at the start, but <laughs> what great work. What a role model, you know, great stuff, man. Uh, so yeah, I, I've got to say I have not followed the program as closely since he has taken the helm, uh, largely because we seem to be irrelevant. Um, but I just chalk that up to the ever-shifting tides within the sports landscape that we've discussed. So, so
2: where do you, I mean, where do you place your fandom now? Or has kind of being immersed in this world as a journalist is that kind of? T- I'm always curious about people who do this more. Like, do you lose that fandom? Some people seem to hold on to it more. Others you know, not so much to kind of hit this land of neutrality. Where where do you kind of find yourself? Where's the emotion for you in a season, whether it's football or basketball or whatever?
1: Sure. So it's certainly generally speaking, the more that you see the behind the scenes, everything kind of loses its sheen, right? Like everything is so polished when you're at a game and made for TV. And, you know, it's like, oh, these are amazing athletes. And, and then you can kind of see the you can kind of see the seams and the grime when you get a little bit behind the scenes, metaphorically speaking, or even like, you're in a locker room and it's like, oh, the jersey has some tears in it or it looks sewn up like it's like on TV. It looks like perfect. Right. And then you get up close and you can see the the uh, imperfections. If, that, if that's what I'm driving at. So, yeah, I'd say my fandom has shifted. I still enjoy a great game. and I'm not as diehard as I was when I was younger. And part of that could just be age. You know, you got a lot more going on when you get older. But I still do, you know, like NFL, I still watch and I'm still a huge Falcons fan, which has cost me nothing but just intense, searing agony for my whole life. And, you know, if Georgia Tech ever were to ever put a basketball or football team together that was halfway decent, uh, I would I would pay more attention. Um, but cert- yeah, certainly it, it does. It does impact how much you care about it because you, you see the business side of it. You see who the people are and, you know, sometimes they're wonderful and sometimes they're very much not. Uh, and it makes it a little harder to just cheer unabashedly for for folks that you you kind of, like I said, you can see the, the the imperfections a little bit more up close,
2: yeah, i'm I'm hopeful, you know, when I was younger, I went through like a phase where I was kind of interested in Georgia Tech and kind of enjoyed some Georgia Tech basketball. So I'm hoping that uh, I think it's good for the ACC right when Georgia Tech is better. So I don't know what the odds of that may be. They may be something like twenty eight to three. I, I'm not really sure, but um
1: you gotta go there <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Lifelong Panthers fan so I understand the agony but you gotta like you know when you get a chance to kick it you gotta kick it. <laughs> It's
0: too yeah. good. We uh Brian and I attended one of my least favorite sporting events of all time. I, I don't remember the year but it was a UVA Georgia Tech game. And in the middle of the game, this driving rainstorm came out of nowhere and also dropped the temperature by like thirty degrees. Oof. And I, just, our, our mutual friend Ben, was with us, and we were just standing there. And I, I think UVA also got destroyed in the game, so it was just like a the perfect storm of horribleness. And I just remember sitting there thinking, like, as a fan, I, you know, had gone through college and was like, you know, I'm going to stay through anything, stay through the elements. But I, I feel like there was a moment we just kind of looked at each other, like. You know, we're adults now. We we can leave. Like we, we're all going to die of pneumonia here if we stay for the second half.
1: Yeah, I think it, we were in silent agreement. I think it was a, yeah. a look and a nod, and that, and we dipped maybe midway through the third. But I think Demarius Thomas already had you know 200 receiving yards by then. Yeah. We're still running the option. He was wide open on some undersized, very smart safety. I think all game. So uh, it was it was it was pretty ugly. Um, so I enjoyed the first half. And then yeah, I'm glad we made the mature decision and got out of
0: there. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I know you've got a busy schedule, so we want to get you out of here on this last segment that we do uh with our guests, which is to remember a dude. So uh maybe maybe this will help you think back to nostalgic days when you were more of a fan. So uh for those uninitiated, we're we're thinking back to players who have just, you know. Burrowed their way into our memories, even though they weren't necessarily the biggest or the most uh, high prestige recruit and just just thinking about them. So I'll let you go first, Brian. Is there, is there somebody that's on your mind, you know, for this segment? Uh,
1: this is a perfect segment. Uh, we we talked a lot about Georgia Tech and I mentioned the basketball camps that I attended in my youth. I think I went summer before ninth grade and summer before 10th. Um, and at the first one, I encountered Small forward, Clarence Moore, who, who ACC aficionados may remember because he was one of those guys that was there. It felt like he was there a decade, right? Like he's just always on the team. The original um, Kihei. Yes, exactly. Just wouldn't go away. And I, I must have encountered him. It was either a second freshman year or second sophomore year, I don't remember. Super nice guy, but just roasted me mercilessly because I was, you know, I was coming. I was private school kid at the time, hadn't transitioned to the big, bad public school for basketball quite yet, but I was going to hone my skills under Paul Hewitt's tutelage. So I, what best to wear, but a brand new Tim Duncan jersey with matching shorts, um, just the coolest guy ever. Um, and so he and a couple of the other player, Georgia Tech players that were there at the camp, just, just, just really went in on me. Uh, and then at the end, he was gracious enough to let me play one-on-one with him. And I was, you know, about to be a freshman. I was probably six one, had hadn't hit a big growth spurt, but tall enough thought I could hold my own and had a good camp. And he's six, five, 20 year old man on division one basketball player. And so I, that was my introduction to, you're going to write about sports and not play them. Um, because <laughs> he would let me kind of get by him. And I thought, Oh my gosh, like I'm actually beating him off the dribble. And the second that the ball went up above my head, it was beat into the stands. And this happened maybe <laughs> half, I was stubborn, maybe a half dozen times. I mean, it was, it was like, I was a toddler. And I think even if I'd you know repeated that my senior year when I was taller and better. If I'd encountered him again in his second or third senior year, um starting small forward for the Jackets, I think we would have had the same result. Uh but he was on that he was on the team that went to the title game. I remember that very fondly, uh, the 04 title game, that team meant a lot to me. I picked them to go in my bracket. I was so proud of myself. Uh, and I was really I was cheering him on the whole time. Cause I, he was he was such a cool guy. You know, I was just a kid and he, you know, you look up to guys like that. So that was a fun experience and uh just the guy I'll always remember fondly for that experience and for the fact that he you know, he put up a solid like six point seven points per game for the better part of my youth. So it was awesome.
2: I'd I just that. did a little bit of quick research. Uh he was also the coach at Kentucky State for a couple of years. Uh back in 2010-2011, led him to a winning season for the first time since two thousand. So then resigned and I can't find anything after that. But yeah, that's a that's that's a dude. That's a great <laughs> dude. <laughs> Well, I was inspired. I went with the same era of ACC basketball. The I well, first of all, the first guy that popped in my head was a little bit later and I decided he was too good. For remember a dude, it was Jack McClendon from Miami. Mm, uh he was like yeah, an all good. ACC player. That guy's that's not a dude. So the guy I thought of uh played at NC State from 2001 to 2005. So right there in that same kind of era, uh Levi Watkins. Hmm. Yeah, Levi Watkins was a, a Parade All-American coming out of high school, so he was a decorated recruit. He was the player of the year in Maryland, but at state, he really just was kind of like, you know, he was solid career averages of five points, two rebounds, like, you know, role player, but he's notable now because he's on the coaching staff, uh, so he's kind of worked his way through some different programs. He's He coached at Buffalo, Arizona State, Ole Miss, and is now back. Um, But he was just always one of those players that uh, when I was younger watching, you know, you just you kind of pick a guy that's that's not the best guy on the floor, but you just like watching him play. He was kind of a bruiser, but also could shoot a little bit, which uh, I I guess I kind of identified with. Yeah, Levi Watkins is my dude. I love watching him play. I love watching him coach now.
0: That's a good pick. I'm I'm glad that you picked somebody that you liked watching because I picked somebody (laughs) that I strongly disliked watching. Stunning. As what? Yeah, I know, right? You're you're shocked by this, Brian. I went with a Maryland player, of the yeah, I know, hated Maryland, Nick Kaner Medley.
1: Oh,
0: yeah. So he his career. One thing I didn't realize about him until researching this, he was the Maine Player of the Year. Like he was the Gatorade Player of the Year from Maine. Oh, wow. And he averaged like 36 points a game (laughs) as a senior. So like, this is a, you know, highly coveted recruit came into Maryland somehow always hit just like dagger of shots, even though he was, uh, he was, he was like the original stretch four at six, eight Um, really good at shooting outside shots, but he never really managed to make it into the pros. He was signed as a free agent by the Pistons in 20, uh, 2006, but he ended up fracturing his foot. And so his career is just all over the place, right? Like, he was still playing as recently as last year in something called Foz-Provence Basket. Sure. Uh, so, in France. So, but man, did, but my my only Nick Keener medley story is that I met somebody that he briefly dated in college and she broke up with him because he did not take her out to a nice enough restaurant when they went out, so... <laughs> oh.
1: Well, she could be in France now. Look what she gave up.
0: I know. She could have traveled the world. Yeah, I'm just but looking
2: at his like <laughs> last few years. She could have been everywhere, man. He was in he was playing in Israel, he was in Kazakhstan, he was in Italy for a little bit. She really missed out on some travel, Japan. Like, come on.
0: He also he has a Azerbaijani passport, so like his family is from there, I think oh it's uh, his okay the way you said that yeah. <laughs> i thought like he just he grabs somebody else's passport no 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 i mean <laughs> I, I assume that he like applied for it legally yeah. but well yeah fun does, stuff. does he play for them like um like for their national I, team i think he did i don't think he does anymore someone nick if you're listening you can <laughs> Call in our next guest,
2: the guy that you just said you hated watching play. He's going to (laughs) be eager to come on the show. (laughs) Yeah,
1: top score in Maine and top score for Azerbaijan. I mean, they just go hand in hand.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, why not? Why not? Uh, Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time. I encourage everybody to read Brian's stuff on Sports Illustrated and all throughout. He also has a great article on Clinton Portis from a few years ago. It's like one of my favorite articles on profiles on any professional athlete uh, having grown up in the D.C. area. Um, you can look up his stuff or reach him on social media at Brian Burn said B-U-R-N-S-E-D Always fun to talk to you, man. Appreciate it.
1: Enjoyed it. I really appreciate the invite. Had fun. And uh, the next one actually is going to be lighthearted. I promise.
0: I was going to ask you
2: if I'm, you had I'm to hold you to that. Up. I was going to ask you if you had anything coming up that you wanted to plug, or if you're if you want to hold your cards close to the vest. I get it too.
1: I do. I well, I can't say what it is, but it'll be in the issue that closes in March, so about a month and a half or so, you'll we'll, we'll see it uh, in print and online.
0: Can't wait. All right, man. Talk to you later. Thanks, Appreciate Brian. You guys.
1: Thanks.